It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, as the world continues to react to the Russian bombardment of Ukrainian cities, we hear from our senior reporter in the Donbass and look deeper into the mysterious Wagner Group. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win. And Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 12th of October, day 231. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, senior reporter Roland Oliphant, who is in Ukraine, and our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. I started off by asking Dom for the latest military developments of the past 24 hours. Well, hi, Francis, and hi, everybody. Uh, Thanks for joining us again. It's been uh, still a very, very active uh, 24 hours. The Russian strikes in response to the Kirsch Bridge um, attack incident, whatever you want to, how you want to call it, we'll talk about that a bit later, uh, continued, albeit at a slightly lower scale. Um, Ukraine has say, says that it's uh, reclaimed five villages in the Hezon region, um, a lot of activity in the Donbass as well, but, but uh, it seems to be the focus in the last 24 hours was down south, so a number of areas reclaimed, and that, that, that steady advance there down to the um, sort of along the edge of the Dnipro River down towards the city of Herzon. Also in that area, um, four Russian Ka-52 attack helicopters were shot down. I mean, they, that's that's quite significant. I mean, they, they are they are they are good aircraft. They are good attack attack helicopters, and to lose four is is really quite quite significant. I mean, it speaks of the air defence network that Ukraine has built up around there, and air defence. I will come back to. As well in a, in a in a short while, but um, aside from that, the um, there have been continued missile strikes from Russia across Ukraine, um, shelling in the Ardivka uh, village or area just north of Donetsk. Um, seven seven civilians killed there, a number of wounded. Ukrainian general staff say that in the last twenty four hours, thirty. Uh, cruise missiles, KH-101 and KH-55 cruise missiles, 30 cruise missiles fired from aircraft, from TU-95, so Tupolev, TU-95 and TU-160 strategic bombers, quite old bombers, but, um, you know, they, are, they, they, still, they still do the job. Um, this has continued the, uh, what we've seen of, of air-launched um, missiles, so well away from, from any air defence umbrella that Ukraine can, can put up. Uh, so those aircraft were probably over... Uh, either over the Black Sea or over uh, Russia, um, but also I mean, so they, they those blasts damaged critical infrastructure in Lviv, and Donetsk, in Zaporizhia, and in another a number of other towns in the uh, sort of west of the country, not quite as far over as Lviv, nowhere near that, more in the more in the centre west of the country. Um, Ukraine uh, say that their air defence shot down um, twenty one of the cruise missiles, so twenty one of the of the thirty and eleven. 
um, drones, 11 uh, UAVs, uninhabited air air vehicles. They're saying that eight Shahid 136 drones were destroyed in the vicinity of Mikolaev. That's um, that's down near Herzon on the Monday, Tuesday night. That was a sort of um, um, in in that region. So, uh, and sorry, I'm just pa- I'm pausing because I always get wrapped up about how to describe these things. So, so the uh, today's UK Defence Intelligence report is. Is, is describing these Shahid 136 drones as one-way drones. Now, a lot of people uh, dislike the term kamikaze drones or suicide drones. That is an easy shorthand, which journalists love hanging on to, but it also it kind of explains it. One-way drones, I, I don't like the, the phrase, um, not totally enamoured with kamikazes, but the, the point is that drones that, that many of us have seen before, worked with, played with, are, are aware of, normally have kind of cameras on board or some other form of electronic attack or they're there for, for other, other reasons. This new breed of drones, bits like the US Switchblade family, um, uh, have and the Barakta, the Turkish Barakta that, that Ukraine have used so, so well, so efficiently. And these drones are designed to not only relay a picture back to the controller, back, back somewhere, um, but then also have a warhead on themselves. So the Shahid 136 has a 50 kilogram warhead. So not a massive blast, but you know, big enough to you know, ruin your day. Um, and the point is that the controller can, the human can decide what, what to go for. So what's the priority today? Is it tanks to stop an advance? Is it air defence to allow our own forces to punch through? Is it headquarters or, or what is it? And then the, the controller can direct the drone into that, uh, into that piece of uh, any equipment or headquarters or, or whatever it is. So that's, the, that's where the, um, the phrase kamikaze or suicide comes in. Um, UK Defence Intelligence calling it, calling it one-way drones. I mean, you know, you pay your money, you take your choice. I think I'm going to stick with with uh, kamikaze because it, it sort of, it really does sort of wrap it up neatly. But UK Defence Intelligence is saying that these drones, the Shahid 136, they are, quote, unlikely to be satisfactorily fulfilling the deep strike function which Russia aspired to use it for. Uh, they go on to say that um, in the uh, the first wave, uh, as in, in the immediate response to the, the Kirsch Bridge uh, blast, 86 Shahids were used and um, Ukraine shot down about 60. Well, they're saying 60 percent of them. So about 52, 52 of the 86 were shot down. UK defence intelligence saying, quote, the lack of a reliable, sustainable and accurate operational level strike capability, operational level being sort of not not tactical. So not just what's around the corner, what's in the next building, what's over the next hill, but operational. Um, Think of it largely for ease of shorthand in terms of distance. So, yeah, let's say 50 ish Ks plus. Um, the lack of that uh, operational level strike capability is likely one of Russia's most significant capability gaps in Ukraine. So they're really saying that with the Russian Air Force very, very reluctant to go anywhere um, outside Russia and certainly not beyond the line of their own troops, um, they, they, um, which, of course, is in flux at the moment, north and south, less so in the centre. But the Russian Air Force really are not going forward because of the the very capable Ukrainian air defence network, that that function, that, that those eyes in the sky, and nowadays marrying the, the eyes and a, and a weapon in the sky with these kamikaze drones, um, Russia is really significantly um, lacking in that capability. Um, lots of other little bits and pieces about what's happening today in NATO and, uh, and some other stuff, but I better just uh, pause for breath there. Thanks, Dom. I just wanted to ask a question um, of you, if I may, um, before we turn to Roland and Natalia. There's been an enormous amount of speculation about how the bridge attack at the weekend was carried out by the Ukrainians. Just wondered whether you had any more thoughts about the most likely scenario that that, that the Ukrainians carried out in order to do that attack. Yeah, sure. So uh, let's just recap. So Saturday morning, early early morning, the Kirsch Bridge, that that um, the 12k bridge, longest bridge in in Europe that links Crimea to Russia, opened with great fanfare um, by President Putin, uh, was subject to a, a, a very large blast. Now, the bridge itself, there are two bridges. There's a road bridge and a rail bridge that runs next to each other. The road bridge has two um, uh, two roadways, basically, and the rail bridge has two rail lines. So, that if, you, if you like, there are four for means of, of movement across the uh, across the bridge. Very early in the morning on Saturday, there was a, a, a huge explosion which seemed to be seated um, on, above or under, I'll come back to that, um, the, the road bridge, 
that seems to have caused a massive fire uh, in, a, in a train convoy that happened to be passing at the time, uh, fuel carrying fuel. Um, so the, the train convoy was was stopped. Huge blast. The, by the time the images got out on social media, the the main the the, the only thing on fire was the rail line, um, the road bridge. There was there was nothing there. I mean, literally nothing there. Some of the road had fallen into one of the spans had fallen into um, into the water into the Sea of, sea of Azov. There. Um, now, what what caused it? Uh, Fairly early on, speculation uh, went onto a a truck. There was some ver- very large uh, vehicle-borne IED, or well, a, a vehicle-borne IED improvised explosive device. Question marks. It might not have been improvised if it was a if it was a um, a Ukrainian bomb, so it wouldn't have been improvised. However, the, the truck came from Russia and was travelling towards Crimea, so so unlikely that it was that it was a. Um, a pre-placed munition on that truck. So we think it might have been a vehicle-borne IED, possibly a suicide bomber, a suicide driver, because whoever was driving that thing wasn't wasn't coming out of there. So possibly a, su- a SVB IED in the in the military jargon, suicide vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. There was other speculation that actually the blast came from the uh, from the rail lines, and that the, the 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 road line was then just sort of caught up in it. I think that's very doubtful because the the blast that then causes the road to to collapse uh in the into the into the sea i don't think could have been a byproduct of whatever happened on the on the rail line so we, so we think the seat of it was on on the road or was, was on the road side now whether it was above um at some sort of missile strike it would be a very very accurate missile which which they they do have access to um high mars although probably out of range here it's more in line with the atacums um the uh, advanced tactical missile system um of the us these very long range very precise very big missiles but we d- repeatedly us have repeatedly stated they have not supplied them and have no intention of supplying those those munitions 300k plus range to Ukraine, so unlikely it was. It was a missile. Um, again, it would have had to been extremely accurate and a very big blast to cause the thing to collapse. So, did it come from underneath? There was there was early on there was some speculation that TV cameras that were mounted underneath the underneath the bridge um, showed some some sort of some sort of, some sort of wake, um, which might have been a might have been a, a craft of some kind. Not forgetting, of course, it was only a few weeks ago that this mysterious. Uh, seaborne drone, seemingly lost control, uh, and and floated up on the um, on the beach of of Sevastopol or in Crimea. So so we know that you well, we think Ukraine have been experimenting with with drone warfare, subsurface and surface drone warfare. I'm less convinced, partly because it it was such a massive bang that I I think I think it would have had to be quite a sizable vessel to um, to have created that, and also relying on. And here I'm relying on a smart engineering comment that I've seen um, from a number of places, uh, which suggests that there would have been much more marking underneath the bridge, the span that we've seen collapse into the water, had the blast been from underneath. So the simple answer is we, we don't know what caused it. Um, I'm a little bit kind of Occam's razor here that in the absence of any other very compelling evidence, you've, you've got to go with the, the, with the simplest and, and most obvious uh, and, and strongest um, suggestion in terms of the evidence available, which is that it was a truck bomb. I mean, that raises all sorts of other questions about was it was it a suicide um, device? Was it was it a suicide bomber? In which case, that that's something um, not only that we've not we don't think we've seen so far in this war, but culturally would be a a hell of a leap for um, for Ukraine. So a lot of question marks still um, over what what caused it. Um, sorry, I, I've discounted, by the way, that it was a special ops forces raid, a soft raid, special forces raid, um, simply for the fact that, I mean, it, it was so, it would have been very difficult to do. Um, but hey, that's what these that's what these people do. So don't don't worry about the very difficult bit. But the amount of explosives they would have had to carry, I just think, puts it out of out of reach of it being it being some sort of SF team doing um, doing their business. So I've come back to. Um, unless and until I'm convinced otherwise, I'm going with the with the truck theory. Now, as I've said, we don't we don't actually know. But I come back to the point I made a couple of days ago. Um, put all that to one side for a moment. What we do know is that something got through. Um, so Putin, for all his claims to the Russian people and, the, and to those in Crimea, trying to sort of quell any rising panic there, 
uh, the, the, the wars coming to them. Him saying, don't worry, I can look after you. I control the security environment in, in my country. You're, you're perfectly safe with me, lads. I mean, that's, that's been demonstrated to be false because something got through, unless you're claiming it was a Russian special services insider attack to force Putin into an even harder line. But I, I put that properly off to, to a corner. Worth looking at and then going, mm, don't think so. So I really don't think this was a Russian intelligence agency attack. Putin's come out and called it a terrorist event. He said it was it was Ukraine's special services. Yada yada yada. yada. Um, it, it's almost irrelevant what he what he says because he just he'll say whatever he needs to say. Um, but I think the, the important parts, the, the important thing to take away from it is that, is that something got through. It, it's added to this feeling of of panic and anxiety and and a lack of security amongst Russian people in in Crimea. And the important point there is because they will be flooding their own social media channels and messages back home. So it er further erodes Putin's um, ability to say to his people, everything's under control, it's a special military operation, blah, 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 I've I've got this one all sewn up. So, yeah, a bit of a long-winded way of saying I don't know. (laughs) But, but, uh, yeah, at the moment I'm going with truck bomb, but the important point is that something, something got through. Thanks, Dom. As I say, I think it was worth taking some time to discuss that in detail just because there's been such intense speculation about the nature of that attack. And I knew that you'd have have some thoughts and and insights on it. I just want to turn now to to uh, Roland. Roland, we heard from Sergio yesterday on the ground in Kiev. You've been elsewhere in Ukraine. Can you just tell our listeners where you are and and what you've seen in recent days? Um, I've just left the Donbass, actually. Um, so the first few days we've been in the Donbass in Donetsk region, um, which is, as, as you know, is not only one of the primary theatres of this war, but has been a theatre of war for eight years. Um, so it's kind of, whenever you go to Donbass, you're returning to uh, towns, cities, roads, landscapes that that have been basically the scene of conflict for a very, very long time. And it's always a little bit a little bit spooky, really, actually. Um, anyway, so yesterday, the reason we went there partly, um, to give you the context, is we felt that we, we've been hearing an awful lot about Ukrainian success and Ukrainian advance, and, and we've covered the Kharkiv advance and, and the Kherson uh, counteroffensive and so on. We've heard much less about um, where the Russians are pushing forward. And basically, the Russians have continued to push in Donetsk region. While all this is going on, um, in in Kharkiv and, and Kherson, the Russians have continued to push forward um, in Donetsk. Not, you know, very successfully, not very fast, but incremental progress does build up. So, one of the one of the key spots is a place called Bakhmut. Um, it was called Artyomovsk until twenty sixteen. Um, and sometimes, if you're um, if you're looking at a kind of pro-Russian sources, they sometimes prefer to use that name. So if you ever see, uh, you know, a, a, a Russian propagandist talking about a battle near Artyomovsk, he means Bakhmut. Um, now, Bakhmut's interesting because back in May, June, if you remember that huge, enormous battle for Donbass when Vladimir Putin put in his huge, um, his huge effort to kind of bite off Luhansk and, and Donetsk region um, with that, that immense, horrendous artillery-backed offensive that just ground down to several Donetsk. Bakhmut was the Ukrainian strong point, the kind of, the kind of behind-the-line city, so, uh, which was the, you know, the, kind of the place of safety, um, if, if, you could, if you want to think about it that way. So about 25 miles um, up the highway to the northeast was Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, which was the focus of that that battle, which I'm sure our listeners all remember. Um, and about 15 miles to the southeast, down another highway, um, there was an area that the Ukrainians used to call the Svetlogarskaya Dugar, the kind of the salient, the Svetlogarsk salient, and that was the front line that was established um, in 2015, basically after the last big battle of the of, of the 2014 to 15 war and about, so that's where the front line stopped. So Bakhmut was, it, it's a, it's a major city by, by Donbass standards. Um, it's strategically placed. It has an important hospital. It has a major market. It has a railway station. Um, it was a place where soldiers were based. Um, 
volunteers were running up and down both roads, bringing people in, um, you know, bringing in, bringing in the wounded, bringing in civilians. Um, you had Sergei Gaidai, who was the governor of Luhansk region. He couldn't be in Severodonetsk anymore, couldn't be in Luhansk region anymore, but he was kind of operating out of there. So ba- Bakhmut was a, um, not entirely safe. It was, it was, you know, under fire in the occasional airstrike, but it was um, a place you could sit and know that the war was, you know, 20 miles away. Um, today, Bakhmut is the front line. Um, the, essentially, there's a river that goes through um, the city, dividing it um, between east and, into east and western halves. Um, on the eastern outskirts, the Russians have now a foothold in the city. Um, and the Eastern Bank is kind of referred to as the grey zone. I suppose in old-fashioned terms, we call it, you know, no man's land. Um, the shelling is... God, well, I mean, yesterday it was kind of sluggish, I think, because the weather was so absolutely horrible and no one could get a drone in the air. But it's constant. I mean, even even yesterday, locals were telling us, look, this is the quietest it's been in months. And it was a kind of repetitive, you know, thud and boom uh, going both ways. You could hear the outgoing and the incoming. Um, like most towns that find themselves in the front line, strangely deserted, that busy marketplace vanished, um, destroyed, essentially. Um, lots of shelled out buildings, um, lots of fear. Every corner there's a horror story, um, which is, I mean, sadly they're kind of they're kind of repetitive. I mean, there's a a particularly horrible spot where there's a burnt out vehicle that was once an ambulance. Um, and the guy showing us around described how the, the paramedics were burned alive. Um, so that's the scene, um, there. I mean, I think the takeaway I would, I, I'd like to give people one of the, one of the important takeaways from yesterday's reporting trip, um, I think is the difference between what you actually see on the ground when you go somewhere and what you're going to read on the telegram channels, delivered by either side so there were kind of reports from you know either side's propagandists talking about either we repelled a a a, a russian attack on bakhmut or the russians saying we're you know we're, we're heavily shelling the 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 ukrainians and and so on and so forth i mean look while i was there yesterday morning though i didn't hear anything that sounded like a really intense fight i mean granted maybe it was going on down the road um but usually you can tell when there's something really serious going on it was a it was a miserable heavy day today is very very sunny and that means drones will be up in the sky and it makes it much easier to operate artillery to find targets and it's just you know a more pleasant environment to fight in so i wouldn't be surprised there's more fighting there today um so that's that's what i've been up to thanks roland uh, it's dom here uh, great to hear from you mate if i could jump in with a with a quick a question and um and ask for your thoughts so bakhmut we've we've heard in recent weeks that that is the focus for the Wagner group fighting so we we're told that that actually there's no coherent Russian army fighting in Ukraine there's uh, there's the regulars and the the, the the regulars that have been bolstered by conscripts and the the um, so-called Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic militia and Wagner and all the rest of it and none of them are working together nicely they don't play well in the sandpit etc etc but we've been told that Wagner are concentrating in Bakhmut been smashing their head against the wall there making some limited advances. Have you seen any evidence or heard any evidence of Wagner or possibly you know, a force that's not the local militia? And just separately, if if you think Wagner are either there or being employed um, in in some numbers elsewhere in Ukraine, what are your thoughts on the suggestion that that is... That is in order to keep Wagner engaged slash distracted, so they are less able to take part in any power plays in Moscow. If there was a, if there was ever a kind of a, a, a rush for power in the event of you know Putin being being unseated, um, thanks, mate. Good questions. I think the first part first. So um, the the idea that Wagner are the force driving the Bakhmut offensive is. That's pretty much a consensus. So you you can read um, the the Russian military propaganda telegrams, um, and they t- always talk about you know Wagner PMC private military company um, advanced in Bakhmut or or trying to do this in Bakhmut, and and that that line has almost become um, <laughs> kind of kind of like a repetitive gag. 
Um, you, you even now see because they've they've made so little progress. Um, you'll now see kind of pro-Ukrainians joking that you know the year is 2025 um, and Wagner are storming Bakhmut. Um, so the, the the pro-Russian sources say it's Wagner. Um, the Ukrainians say it's Wagner. The we were not hanging out with the Ukrainian military yesterday, but we were hanging out with you know civilians um, who formed their own volunteer group. They're local guys. They know the place. They were convinced it was Wagner that who who are you know over the river and pushing in. They also said, "Oh yeah, we've also got." Um, I think he said five thousand elite Kadyrovci. Um, so five thousand elite fighters loyal to Ramzan Kadyrov. That's the only person I've heard say that. Um, I have no way to stack it up, but it, it just gives you an idea of that rumor is going around um, in Bakhmut as well. Um, but but yes, I think we can be fairly sure. It's Wagner on the other side. I'm unable to cross no man's land and interview Russian soldiers and ask them which section of the Russian war machine they're from. But I think it's 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 fairly clear that's what's going on. Now, why are Wagner there? Um, I'm afraid I'm going to dodge that, that, that political question you laid out. Um, I have no idea whether whether Wagner are indeed being tied up there so they can't muck around in Moscow. Um, if they weren't fighting in Bakhmut, they would be fighting in other parts of the lines. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure you could say Bakhmut is a, a, a particular thing that they've been given to keep them tied up um, so they don't kind of get distracted because no matter what is going on, they, they are going to be involved in Ukraine. They're going to be kind of tied up in Ukraine. There are... There's a number of theories. I mean, another theory is that that they're being paid, that, you know, either they're being paid for each assault they make or each day of active um, military action or combat action, uh, which is why they keep on pushing forward, even if they're not making that much progress, perhaps. Um, that's what some of the guys in Bakhmut said to me. You know, these guys are mercenaries and they get paid, they get paid for fighting and that, that's their interest. Maybe there is a... Um, What's the word? A, a bounty on Bakhmut they've been given. Um, you know, you, you're going to get a big payoff if you get that city. But the, the Kremlinology you raised there, um, I think is interesting. I'm a little bit leery of being drawn into it um, because I, I could very easily sit around in a pub with you and kind of spin out all kinds of elaborate theories. I, I feel like those theories should kind of remain in the pub. I think we have such little realistic grasp of what's happening underneath the carpet in Moscow. It's probably going to do our listeners a disservice um, to kind of spin things up. It may be entertaining um, and I'm happy to entertain people, but but I, I don't want to kind of make things up, if you see what I mean. Thanks, Roland. Thanks, Dom. Well, this seems like the opportune moment to bring in Natalia, our Russia correspondent. Natalia, you've written a piece for the paper today about Russia's private armies, which we were just talking about there. What's what's the latest in this in this area? Hi, Francis, and hi, everyone. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very good of Roland to mention Wagner. Obviously, that's the Russian private military contractor that has been quite active um, in Ukraine. Um, and what really caught my attention yesterday was uh, quite a rare um, public intervention by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man behind Wagner, uh, who issued a statement um, via per his press office, um, essentially challenging Russian lawmakers uh, to uh, fund private armies or go to Ukraine front lines and fight themselves. Um, what makes that intervention um, um, quite extraordinary is the fact that Prigozhin for years has been uh, described as a mastermind behind Wagner, behind the infamous troll factory, which was caught um, interfering in the U.S. presidential elections in, in 2016. But uh, he was always very low-key. He sued, uh, he sued numerous journalists for um, uh, naming and shaming him for founding Wagner. Now, Prigozhin has been uh, increasingly uh, public, and that was probably his first major political statement when he essentially criticized the state Duma, the lower 
Chamber of the Russian Parliament for being not active enough and being not supportive enough of the invasion. And uh, um, the way he put it, he basically accused them of, uh, quote, shouting slogans from the rostrum instead of, um, another quote, taking up automatic rifles or at least sappers' shovels and going to fight which he described as a true service to motherland. So this is definitely something to watch. There's quite a discussion going on um, in uh, the Russian analyst community about the rise of Yevgeny Prigozhin, of how public he's becoming. We see um, uh, his um, press office or telegram channels close to him uh, now and again uh, would put out a video of Prigozhin talking to Wagner mercenaries, which is quite rare because for years... Um, he was not seen in public. You would you would have a difficulty finding a picture of him, let alone something that current. So there's a kind of a discussion of what what it means, whether he's um, uh, vying for Putin's attention, whether he might be setting his sights on a senior position in the Russian government. So that's that's definitely something to watch in the coming weeks. Um, another thing I wanted to discuss is uh, Joe Biden's interview that came out last night. Um, he spoke to CNN and he spoke about uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, whom he hasn't personally talked to since the start of the invasion. Um, and uh, he offered his views on um, uh, Putin's rationale behind the invasion. As you know, there's quite a bit of discussion whether Putin is Putin honestly believes or believed that Ukrainians will open will welcome his army with open arms, or whether he is, um, as some people say, it's sick and he's completely delusional, um, and uh, just uh, obviously apparently like, doesn't even know what he's doing. Now, in in Joe Biden's opinion, uh, Vladimir Putin, as he put it, is a rational actor who miscalculated the invasion. Um, and uh, did not expect the um, resistance that that Ukrainians offered. Um, Biden said that he believed that Putin was rational within his own framework of mind, that he honestly expected that um, Ukrainians would welcome his troops with open arms and that they would be happy to join Russia just the way Crimea um, joined Russia in 2014. This is something that Russia... Uh, this is, that's how Russia plays it. Obviously, we're talking about an illegal annexation, um, if it needs to be spelled out. Um, that's uh, that, that's quite interesting view from Biden, especially at the time when everyone is talking about a potential nuclear threat of Ru- from Russia. Um, you know, weighing possibilities of uh, whether Putin might be in the frame of mind when he would seriously consider this option of um, uh, using nuclear weapons. Um, so it looks like at, at this point, the US president th- thinks that Putin is rational within his own framework of mind, as we put it. And that's, uh, that sort of corresponds to what I've been hearing and from what we saw in the opening weeks of the invasion when um, uh, several major intelligence leaks showed that the FSB, the Russian intelligence community, has essentially uh, been feeding Putin with misinformation, whether it was deliberate or not, but basically convincing him of this fanciful idea that um, uh, the Russian army you know, would have an easy ride and uh, uh, we would be greeted with open arms in Kiev, which didn't happen, in fact. Thank you very much, Natalia. And just something I wanted to touch on since we're on the political sphere and I've been covering the Elon Musk saga now for some time. Um, There's been a a further development in this space in the last 24 hours, which is that Musk is now at the centre of claims that Putin told him personally that he would use nuclear weapons if Ukraine tried to reclaim Crimea. So I should say off the bat that Elon Musk has denied this. He's denied these reports um, yesterday publicly on Twitter. The reports originally uh, came from uh, Ian Bremmer, who is uh, a very prominent uh, sort of president of a widely respected firm that advises governments about global risks. And he claimed that uh, that, that Musk had, had told him this personally, which then Musk rebutted, um, as I say, all uh, live on Twitter. And uh, but the the. The report suggested, as I say, that he was uh, that the 
that Putin and Musk had spoken and that this was the trigger point for Musk to then uh, offer his peace plan that we discovered, discussed at length last week. Um, So again, another interesting um, uh, development. We don't yet know the truth of that, but it does seem strange that Elon Musk, who didn't seem to have much of a a deep following of the war, at least not publicly, um, suddenly became very, very engaged uh, with it in in a short space of time. And now indeed it is something that he's focusing on almost every day on on Twitter. So just thought I would draw attention uh, to that because I've been covering this uh, um, quite extensively in the last couple of weeks or so. Roland, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, the the Musk thing, I think it it plays into what, you know, you and Natasha were just discussing um, about the problem with with yes men. So for me, the interesting thing, I, I, you know, I don't really give two hoots about about where this came from or Elon Musk and what he's up to. But what was interesting to me was the content of this alleged conversation um, recounted by Ian Bremmer, which Mr. Musk denies and and so on. If this conversation happened, um, according to Mr. Bremmer, the contents of of Mr. Putin's demands are: look, I'm I'm ready to talk peace, but but these are my conditions. Um, and one condition is that Crimea remains Ukraine. Um, sorry, sorry, let me say that Crimea remains Russian in some form. Um, another condition is that um, that Ukraine has some kind of neutral status, therefore doesn't join NATO. And the third condition is that um, Russia's annexation of, of Zaporizhia, Kherson, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk is recognized, um, which I just think... I mean, if if that really is um, the thought that, that that Mr. Putin tried to get out via Elon Musk, it just betrays this complete disconnect with reality in 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 two senses. And the first disconnect with reality is that you don't make demands like that unless you're winning the war, and he's not winning the war. I mean, the upshot of of, of that kind of outcome would be a basically a large-scale repetition of the Minsk II agreement, which froze the 2014-15 war um, with a de facto, if not de jure, Russian annexation of parts of Donetsk and Luhansk and and Crimea. And and that happened, basically, to put it in crude terms, because the Russians won the war. Right? They, they crushed the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army surrounded the bounce of it, and Poroshenko had to basically give in to this, this peace dictated by Mr. Putin. He's not winning. Um, and and he's not in a position to make those kinds of demands. And and the, the second thing, which I think is important, is th- this idea that the first two points are, you know, Crimea uh, remains Russian. Well, that was probably going to happen until he started this war. Um, Ukraine remaining neutral, no one was going to let them into NATO. So it's his own fault those are on the table anyway. Um, but also th- this this demand about, okay, now accept my annexation. I think that Mr. Putin has just just absolutely no grasp of the attitude in the West, which, which really goes, you know, he miscalculated about Ukraine. I think he's he's calculated for a long time that, look, you know, they've always given in to us. They've never, you know, they always give way. There's always a kind of a, a mercantile, um, slightly spineless um, attitude behind all of these, you know, Western statements of values and stuff. It seems to me, in Moscow, he doesn't quite grasp how seriously Western elites take what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and I think and until that really begins to filter through to the Kremlin, until they begin to grasp that, oh, actually, you know what, um, it turns out in, in Washington and London and, and wherever else, they really do think this is a question of their existential security. Um, and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to roll over and take this thing that we, we think we can present as a fait accompli. I think there's a massive, massive gulf um, in in the Russian elite's understanding of the West, just as in a way, which is a slightly separate topic, there has been a failure um, historically in, in Western elites to, to grasp Russia. But those are the thoughts that just shone out to me um, from that incident. Thanks, Roland. And Natalia, I'm sure you've got some some thoughts on this too. Sure, thanks. Just very quickly, I know that a lot of people who first heard about uh, the 
possible Musk and Putin conversation, were quite surprised that uh, Putin would be talking to someone like Elon Musk to discuss foreign policy. Um, and we know that the Kremlin has officially denied that happened. They they did confirm that Putin and Musk had a chat a year and a half ago. But I just wanted to put it into context that it's not the first time that Putin is uh, talking about matters of national importance with um, celebrities or pop stars. Uh, we have seen that happening for quite some time that uh, Putin, as he has been gradually disappointed and disillusioned um, with uh, Western politicians, with the Western establishment, he has been trying to uh, reach out to um, uh, to celebrities and pop stars. To he's, he's been trying to engage in what some people call people's diplomacy. So we've seen him hosting um, anyone from French film actor Gérard Depardieu to uh, Hollywood action movie stars Steven Seagal. And he has fostered those relationships. Um, in some ways, for him, it became an outlet, as he saw it, of, of addressing the American or the French public. As, for example, you know, in his multiple conversation with Steven Seagal, he would always make it look like, you know, we're not the enemies of the American people. And people like Steven Seagal, these are, you know, the sort of salt of the earth. These are the people who actually really represent what Americans think, unlike, you know, the establishment in Washington, D.C. So that's, uh, that's totally not out of character. Um, I would expect that's obviously as... As we see, the Kremlin has been anxious to find a way to, uh, um, uh, you know, to, to seek a ceasefire at, at this point when uh, Russia is suffering losses. I would expect that we're going to see more examples of this people's diplomacy and, and him trying to talk to quite random people without, foreign, without formal offices behind their backs. Thanks, Natalia. Dominic Nichols, we're talking a lot here about intelligence and the importance of understanding the way that a people think and an elite think. What did Sir Jeremy Fleming have to say yesterday? So uh, I went to see Sir Jeremy Fleming. He's the head of GCHQ, Britain's um, cyber security agency, national intelligence agency, sits alongside the cousins MI5 and SIS, better known as MI6. So GCHQ, um, he was giving the annual security lecture for RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, the think tank here here in London. So Sir Jeremy was the, uh, was the speaker for that. And he... Um, I mean, he started his career in MI5. He's now he's been leading GCHQ since 2017. So he's a career career intelligence officer, career spook. Um, he, uh, he knows his onions. There we go. I'm trying not to say it. I've been uh, picked up on Twitter from some Australian listeners that um, onions are colloquialism in that part of the world for testicles. So apologies, I keep saying people know their onions, but there we go. It's, it's my phrase and I'm going to hang on to it. Um, so Jeremy Fleming, we was asked a number of things. He was highlighting his main part. He was highlighting the, the uh, rising threat from China in terms of cyber, um, cyber capabilities and um, uh, norms and standards for the for Internet as we move forward and quantum computing and AI and all the rest of it. But actually, he was the most interest, interesting bits, the most sort of contemporary and detailed bits. He was talking about um, talking about Ukraine and he was asked why, uh, why we have not seen a lot of cyber attacks in the Ukraine war so far. And he said, actually, there's been a huge amount of cyber activity um, uh, since February the 24th. Um, and he's like, just not, quote, the film version. He said it's not not the Armageddon version, but there's a huge amount of, of um, cyber activity uh, going on that he is seeing at GCHQ and that is being perpetrated uh, by Russia against against Ukraine. But then on, on nuclear, he was asked um, specifically ab- ab- about that. Um, and in terms of the question was put to him in terms of escalation, these these missile strikes post the Kirsch Bridge attack. Now, I, I've I've written I wrote, wrote a couple of days ago that I take issue with the term escalation. I don't think this was an escalation from Russia. This is just what they do. They can do nothing else. So they just they just fire missiles to terrorize the civilian population in the hope of breaking Ukrainian will and the, and the will of the of those partners outside Ukraine, keeping them in well, not keeping them. That's far too strong. Apologies, but you know, supporting them in in the fight. So I don't think it was an escalation. But 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 he was saying that that it was not an escalation because it's just more of the of the same weapons used. However, he did say about uh, about the possible use of of nuclear weapons. He said it's a very concerning time, very dangerous um, thing to do. There'd be serious repercussions. He said that uh, he was asked if if the intelligence agencies external, particularly. Five Eyes intelligence agencies would would see would get prior warning would be able to see through their 
kind of indicators and warnings and all their other all their, all their assets and what have you would see um, preparation. And he he said uh, that highly highly likely to highly like to see that. However, he said there were no guarantees. Of course, there were no no guarantees ever. But he was. Um, he was not talking down the threat at all because it, it is a it is a, a very large uh, it is a large threat. He said we'd have a good chance of spotting it, but no guarantees. I think that's about as that that says it all. He says, however, we all need to be concerned about about the rhetoric. Um, now his his comments have been echoed by Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO. Um, today he's been talking about he's been talking about the, sort of the chat the, the chatter around nuclear use. He says this is dangerous and irresponsible, um, and in particular he said that NATO long planned NATO exercises next week, um, uh, practicing nuclear response are not going to be cancelled. So this is exercise steadfast noon um, involves fourteen NATO countries long plan for next week and yes Stoltenberg said that to, to cancel those exercises because of because of what's happening in Ukraine would send a quote a, a very wrong signal unquote and I think that's quite clever I think he's right there because um, to move away from a very firm line of, of of business as normal if you like would would give Putin um, a win for starters that he's affected NATO posture um, but also it would allow him to then think, aha, if I use the rhetoric that I've been using in, in the recent past, that then makes NATO do this. And he might draw um, false conclusions from that. Um, and there'd be a, this mis- miscalculation that brings with it a risk of escalation in and of itself. So I think it was, I think it was the right move by NATO not to cancel these exercises for next week, even though... I mean, there will be chatter in um, from from. I'm I'm imagining Dmitry Peskov, the um, Russian Defence Ministry spokesperson, he's going to be he's going to be all over this anytime soon, saying NATO is, is very provocative having these n- nuclear exercises. But I think it's right the right thing to do not to cancel it and therefore give Putin um, some some means of analysing. And let's face it, his analysis, his geostrategic analysis, ain't great. So you know, give him a give him a, a chance to analyse. Ah, if I do that, NATO does this. Um, I think would be the be the wrong thing. Now, um, Jens Stoltenberg has been speaking at, uh, in NATO headquarters in Brussels, where today, in fact, right now, right now, in fact, there is the latest of the Ukraine Defence Contact Group, otherwise known as the Ramstein process, because it was kicked off by uh, US um, Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin in the US air base Ramstein in Germany. So known as the Ramstein process. This is the sixth such meeting. This is a military aid uh, conferences. It's running alongside, or sorry, um, just before the um, monthly NATO defence ministerial, so all the there are some very big uh, power players in the right in the, of the right ilk, so the, the defence ministers and the national uh, national leaders, um, some national leaders meeting to discuss Ukraine aid. Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's defence minister, has already tweeted. He says number one on the agenda is strengthening Ukraine's air defence, and he also went on to to say uh, with great delight that four. More HIMARS, US HIMARS um, systems have arrived in Ukraine today. Jens Stoltenberg said that increasing Ukraine's air defence capabilities was the, quote, top priority from the meeting today. And General Mark Milley, who's the uh, the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said, uh, quote, after Russia's attack, sorry, after Russia attacked the Ukraine Ukrainian civil population, we will be looking for air defence options that will help the Ukrainians defend themselves. Now, I think there were three really interesting things there in General Milley's statement. So he said, after Russia attacked the Ukrainian civil population. So clearly laying down those actions have these consequences. And then he says, we'll be looking for air defence options. So really specific here. Okay, We're not talking long-range precision strike. We're not talking drones, not talking medical. I mean, all this stuff happens as well. But the fact that he mentions air defence options, I think, is, is significant. And then finally, la, 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 that will help the Ukrainians defend themselves. So still against um, not necessarily a rising tide, but a lot of calls for NATO to get involved, boots on the ground, or if not on the ground, then in the skies and in the waters above and around Ukraine. Mark Milley there being very clear that, that these... Um, defensive military assets uh, will be for Ukrainians to defend themselves, but making it very, very clear that that, that air defence is the priority and this is a direct result of Russia attacking the civil population. So I think what we should expect to see out of today are a lot more pledges. The 
the mood in the recent months, you, you'll remember, was for high Mars. And it was all, no, 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 no. And then, yes, your high Mars were sent. Another long-range precision artillery. And that helped to a very great degree um, counter Russia's artillery systems and and allowed or was it was a big part in allowing that that uh, the major thrust um, up in the north and the pushback in in the Donbass so the argument now seems to be shifting from from the kind of high marsy from the long-range precision strike into air defense why do I think that's um, noteworthy firstly because it signals a, a subtle shift in the emphasis but also the thing about air defense is that you can't you can't protect everywhere all of the time. Air defence will only be small little bubbles around things of vital interest. You cannot protect an entire city. It's almost impossible to put a big dome over Kiev and protect the whole thing. Okay, we need to get that. Needs, that point needs to be made um, more often and and uh, at every at every level because. It, the push for high Mars, when that was not as strong as it as it then subsequently became, the um, it was not so obvious and evident that that was lacking. Whereas air defence is, because we see these horrific images of children's playgrounds blown up, of 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 accommodation blocks smashed to bits as, as if just pummeled pummeled by a giant's fist. We see these horrific images. So the failure in in air defence or not having enough air defence is very, very visible, which is what Putin wants and what we need to prepare ourselves for because even if Ukraine had every air defence system that that NATO and external partners could possibly offer them, some of these strikes would still get through and we would still be bombarded with these images and it would be a wrong conclusion to take from that, oh my God, there's there's simply no way of of pushing back against the Russians. We should uh, should, uh, acquiesce and and, um, come to terms. Okay, that is the wrong conclusion to take from even a very, very well-layered air defence network. But I I kind of digress, go sort of uh, off on one there. I apologise for that. Um, So today, NATO, big priority, uh, big focus on air defence. Um, all underpinned, of course, by the constant threats of, of use of nuclear weapons, potential use of nuclear weapons from Russia. I think very telling comments there from Jeremy Fleming, the head of GCHQ, that they are fairly confident they would see preparations for that, and there is no, there is, there is no, there are no such, um, there is no evidence so far of, a, of an increased alert. Interestingly, the Pentagon spokesman a few days ago, in response to the similar question, said that they had seen nothing. Um, to make the US adjust their posture, which is not the most, not the strongest sort of response. But yeah, that's that's what you got from them. Not nothing. They'd seen nothing to make them adjust their posture. But it doesn't look as if Russia is is ramping up the physical preparation for any kind of nuclear strike. So I think those those comments by Jeremy Fleming are very interesting and just adds to this um, this wider debate that's moving now into the into the air defence environment. Thanks, Tom. Well, as so often, a significant day in both the military and the political spheres, if indeed they can be separated. Thank you all for your insights. We're running out of time. So can I just get your final thoughts today? Um, Starting with Roland, please. Hello. Um, I I always get to the end of these things and realise there's, you know, a lot of things I haven't said. Um, But I'll I'll leave them there. I do have a dispatch um, coming out about Bakhmut shortly. Please check the website, look at the the newspaper um, for that. And I hope I I lay out all the things that I think are important about that battle in there. Um, Two things. Um, Francis, I heard your your final thought yesterday about um, this big question about the future of Russia and liberalism and so on. I it, I don't have the time to get into that discussion. I think it's really interesting. I think I personally think broadly on the right track there. Um, that's just one little thing. But the other thing is, um, look, we've just had this uh, announcement this afternoon from the uh, the Ukrainian Ministry of Reintegration. I think um, saying that thirty seven children who had been kind of spirited away to Russia um, have been returned, and this is this is really good news, basically. Um, uh, again, this is this is a story I've been looking at. Um, we may get a piece out about this, but there are there are legal and ethical issues about writing about children that we want to get, um, you know, get our ducks in a row before we before we publish anything about this. But basically, there there was a large number of children from Kharkiv region who were um, sent to Russia to kind of to holiday camps, and the idea that was sold to their parents was, look, get them out of the firing line. A lot of people did that. The Ukrainians liberated the territory. 
no one knew how they'd get their kids back. Their kids were stuck over in, in, in Russia. They seem to have come back. And the thing, the kind of little glimmer of hope I see here is that behind the scenes somewhere there has been a, a little bit of, of, of humanitarian cooperation here. People on both sides said, look, kids have to be with their parents. And in fact, I was reading the Telegram channel of Alexander Kotz from Komsomolska Pravda. Anyone who follows him knows he, he is an absolute, you know, hawkish Russian nationalist believes in this horrible war and all of that. Um, but, but he literally said in his telegram post, you know, we all knew these kids had to go back to, um, their parents. Um, and if, you know, behind the scenes, there can be these tiny, tiny little things where, where officials on either side say, no, look, forget about the ideology, forget about anything else. Let's just keep families together. That to me, um, is just a little spark of light in the darkness, um, which is worth nurturing and focusing. Thanks, Roland. And as you say, I know that our intention in the long term is to be able to do a special episode dedicated to this question of deportations, because it's something, as we've talked about in the past, that isn't quite getting the same amount of focus and attention that perhaps it deserves. But uh, Natalia, can I come next to you for your final thought, please? Sure. Um, I'm going to be try very uh, quick. Um, I think that the, the whole... Twitter scandal about um, someone tweeting about Putin talking to uh, Elon Musk and then Musk responding that he never talked to him, although he did support his peace plan or, or, or didn't he support his peace plan. I think it's quite indicative of what's happening. Clearly, the Kremlin is looking for a way out. It's, it's anxious to stop the war as it is because it keeps losing lands. And I think that's something to um, watch for in the coming weeks uh, for any signs of formal or um, informal attempts to, um, if not build bridges, to at least start some kind of conversation about how, how to stop this war. Thanks, Natalia. And Dom, you have the final word. Well, thanks, Francis. And I think we should be focusing on NATO today and what comes out of the um, the Ramstein 6 meeting, uh, Ramstein number 6 meeting, uh, in particular for air defence, for, for all the reasons I've said just a little while ago. But just because all Russia can do at the moment, all Russia can do, uh, essentially short of use of nuclear weapons, but you know, I'm in the camp. I think that's extremely unlikely, for the, again, for the reasons we've, we've discussed. All they can do is attack civilian areas, as we've seen. So I wonder if Ukraine is preparing for that um, ahead of any further advance um, east in the, in the north and the centre and, and south around Herzon. So just as they are resting and recuperating their fighting forces that have been going through, you know, going through a hell of a lot in the last couple of months, but as they are recuperating those forces, are they taking this moment to really push the international agenda to get air defence in there? Because when they go again, they know that what will come back at them will be aimed at their civilian areas. I think that's a a sensible analysis. I just wonder on the timing... Um, whether or not they've got anything left in the tank this side of, of winter or if they will be recuperating over the winter and having the time then to get these air defence systems into Ukraine better to protect the cities and civilian areas and the, and the national infrastructure ahead of any any push because I don't see any changes in the the Russian army that they have in the field cognizant of my earlier comment that, that there's about five or six different armies in the field but but they've got no battlefield response. So Ukraine know what will happen now if and when they push again. And I think they are sensibly preparing for that. Um, we should also prepare for that um, mentally and emotionally, as well as those that can lending uh, material support. Because, as I say, something will always get through and there will always be more of these images. And this might be this might be the shape of things to come if, if Ukraine continue their advance then it's the civilians who will bear the brunt of that advance and there will be many calls stimulated um, and pushed by bots and, every, and, and, the, and the Russian proxies saying, look what you're doing to your people, Zelensky. Look what you are doing to the Ukrainian people with your supplies, Westerners or those outside the country. And, and we have to prepare ourselves for those awful images and those difficult arguments because that's all that Russia has got left in the tank. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. 
You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear an episode as soon as it is available, please do subscribe to a podcast app or check the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.